When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Justin, Audros, you uh, you told me about something that you you've been geeky about actually for the past few episodes, and uh, you finally got me to see it. And that was uh, a movie on Netflix called The China Hustle. That's right, The China Hustle. And I I just watched the movie. I was blown away. There's a level of fraud happening in. Chinese companies that are listing on the U.S. stock exchange that I had no idea about. And, and most people I've talked to had no idea about. And so uh, I, I watched the movie. I, I shot an email out to the guy that was the, the head narrator. And, and lo and behold, I, I got something back. That's it's being proactive, my friend. That's why that's why you're the you're the you're the man. That's right. That's you're the man. That's right. And and uh, and he is here to lay out a story that will just straighten out your short and curlies because if 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 you weren't scared of money before buddy have i got a tale to tell yeah this this may just terrify you so viewer discretion is advised so uh and before we begin if you haven't seen the china hustle stop the audio go watch the china hustle hit play again and it's then, available for free on hulu that's right or if you're in europe it's on netflix uh, and uh, all that and more here on the Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Uh, our first uh, guest, our guest is, uh, 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 wow, this is there's, it's just a story. And I, first of all, if you haven't, if you haven't seen The China Hustle, Stop listening to this. I mean, listen to it later, but uh, watch The China Hustle on Netflix and then come back and listen to this interview. It's on, Hulu. it's on Hulu. Watch it on Hulu for free or uh, you could buy it on Amazon. It's not on Netflix as far as I know. We'll leave a link. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dan David. <laughs> let, me, let, me give a, let me give a little bit of an intro to Dan here before we bring him on here. So today we have an incredible guest. I'm really excited for this. Dan David, the, uh, the head of Wolfpack Research. And the narrator and I would say the featured character uh, in the movie, the documentary movie, The China Hustle, which uh, is an incredible, incredible film. I highly recommend everybody check it out. Uh, I'll, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. You'll hear a little bit about how that goes, uh, how that goes on. But please, please welcome to the show, Dan David. Dan, how are you today? Good, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being on the show. So, um uh, I got to first of all, it, for those of, of our listeners who don't really know who you are, can you kind of give us a, the, the SparkNotes version of your story? SparkNotes. SparkNotes. OK. I think, I think <laughs> they replaced CliffNotes. I, I don't think CliffNotes <laughs> okay. exists anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
around 2006, I partnered up uh, with my partner, Gio Investing, Maj Dan, and uh, he had a hedge fund and I ran the venture capital end of the business. And, you know, things were fine. We did, you know, well in 2006 and seven. And then 2008 rolled around. As you may have heard, that was a tough year. <laughs> I heard, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, after being up in, in, in his fund, you know, 49% in 06 and 50% in seven, we were down 79% in two months. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and I had pretty much decided at that point that I could no longer be involved in a business where I just kind of ran one end of it and didn't have much to do with the other end of it. So I started getting involved in the investing side of geo investing. And from there in, in discussing it with Maj, because he had been doing it for 20 years about his, his formula and it was value investing, right? And it, it had worked for him and taken him, you know, to, to, to be, Quite successful. Warren Buffett style. Yeah, you know, in the small micro cap space, uh, that's where mm -hmm. his niche was. Um, I was, you know, kind of agnostic to whatever it was. I just wanted to understand his process. Then, you know, we decided that this was a blip in history, and that we would continue to to invest in that same style. And when you looked at the best value going into 2009, there were all these U.S. listed China-based stocks, right? I mean, they were just blowing the doors off. Their, you know, their guidance was going to be up, you know, 100% year-over-year revenue. You know, same thing with, same thing with margins, same thing with, um, you know, every bit of metrics you could put behind it, you know, earnings per share. So we invested heavily into most of these companies. I think 90% of the fund went into China-based companies in 2009. <laughs> and we picked up 229%. You got, got it wow. all back. Yeah. In the, in the movie, it, you mentioned that um, a lot of your cohorts were abandoning their hedge funds and starting new ones, uh, probably rebranding themselves to get away from the big losses from 2008. But you didn't want to do that. So what, what made you kind of stick with your fund to begin with and, and – and also, how did you discover like the China-based companies as like this big opportunity, or what? Uh, what was a perceived opportunity? Well, see, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I forgot. I guess I forgot that was in the movie, but that really was uh, a big conversation uh, with my partner. That a lot of these funds, you can't collect fees until you get back to your high water mark, right? So, yeah, that's why these funds that were down 80 percent, whatever, just kind of shuttered the fund and started a new fund. They could collect fees right away again. But for us, a lot of these investors were friends and family. And even if they weren't, for those that weren't, you know, we had to be there for them. We couldn't just like walk away from them. And, yeah. and it just didn't sit right with us. We really had that Main Street mentality. So I appreciated that about my partner. There was no pushback on that, that no matter how long it took for us to work for free, we would do that. Um, so you're somebody with empathy, which is, which is nice. It's refreshing for, uh, for wall street. I think it's funny. We just did a, a an interview with uh Tucker max. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a, no. a New York times bestselling author. Uh, but he, he talks about how all these, there's all these psychopaths are in like Hollywood 
Wall Street yeah. and in politics. Those are like the three areas where they all conglomerate into we had a big conversation about it. Well, so it is it is refreshing because th- that does exist over there. Uh, but it's refreshing to see like empathy and humanism kind of come out um, from that side of the world. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, uh, within uh, I got into investing, which is nominally considered Wall Street. Uh, we we made a movie. So we dealt with Hollywood. And then I ran for Congress. And I can say that your friend is 100% correct. They're all psychopaths. <laughs> In every yes. one of those industries, and I can give you very specific examples about each one of them. I mean, for Wall Street, you, you probably don't even need an example. It just, you know, pervades on yeah. uh, narcissism and psychopaths. Some more obvious than others. <laughs> yeah. But you know, to answer your original question, you know, what took it to China is we had a checklist of like, you know, 30 different things we looked at for something that was investable on the long side. And going down that list, you know, does this company, how many of these of these things do, do does it tick off right uh, on that checklist? And, and a lot of them were in China. They were just, you know, checking all the boxes for us. So that's why we went there. And, and we thought, like, look, they're. They're audited by Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, whatever, KPMGs, you know, I mean, they're listed on our exchange. So fraud is fraud. If there's a problem, then it's going to be dealt with in the same way that, you know, a pump and dump would be dealt with. Uh, yeah. Not the case, actually, <laughs> as you as you saw. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything about U.S. Uh, or China-based companies listing on the U.S. stock exchange is bizarre. And like reeks of kind of like the same tricks that were played in the 2008 mortgage crisis to begin with, with the, with the dividends and the, or not the dividends, I'm sorry, the uh, derivatives and then the derivatives of derivatives and like the mess that came out, (laughs) came out of, uh, came out of all that. But let's let's talk a little bit about how these companies list, because I found that to be fascinating. And the the process described in the movie is a, a reverse merger. Yeah. So these are, these are. China-based companies, um, there's a, I guess it's a smaller, U, smaller U.S. banks are the ones that are taking on this kind of uh, risk, apparently. And maybe that's because it's, uh, they have less oversight. I don't, I don't know the reason for that. Or wh- why, why were the smaller banks the ones that were listing these companies? Well, a lot of them were smaller deals. Okay. Uh, and they're, they, yeah, reverse merger, reverse takeover, RTOs, they're called. And basically, it's a dormant shell, say, you know, two publicly listed companies merge, right? Uh, one buys out another, what's left behind is the shell of, of a company. Yeah. Uh, and these shells have some value. You you buy this shell and you just merge your company into that shell. And what was a mining company 10 years ago is now selling vitamins in China. But basically it was, these are like dormant companies. These are companies that are, yeah, you said shells that have not been active. Yeah. Uh, there's no operations underneath them, but they still have the public company designation. So, right. so basically they're taking advantage of that and listing the Chinese company there. And does that, does that start to like avoid some of the auditing or it does some of the oversight? Okay. Yeah, it, it, it does. They, uh, you don't have as much of a rigorous uh, procedure as you do in an IPO. Not that, you know, that's anything special anymore, but you know, this was pretty plug and play, right? You reverse merged into this non-operating shell and boom, you've got a ticker symbol and you're trading basically the next day. And, and that's what happened with these companies. Um, And, you know, look, there's a legitimate use for these. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway was an RTO back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) So it it does happen. Uh, and, And now that, now that that's kind of become, 
um, you know, a pejorative to be an RTO. Uh, Congress went ahead and helped all these companies out by doing the Jobs Act, uh, which gives you kind of an IPO light um, version of listing on our exchanges. So they're, they're now doing that. And, you know, they're frauds there too. So, you know, in 2009, we did well. 2010, we started to get out of some of these companies because they hit a valuation target that we were comfortable with, not because we thought they were frauds. And we started to see short sellers, which we were not, uh, come out with these reports that said some companies that we exited were frauds. And we decided right away that like, look, I mean, either we're good at what we do or we just got incredibly lucky. And <laughs> if, if you want to, you know, invest by luck, that's a good way to go broke again. So let's figure this out. And I was pretty convinced the short sellers were wrong and just, you know, making this, this shit up because I came, I came from a corporate environment. So, you know, for 15 years, um, I worked for a jewelry conglomerate. I was a senior executive uh, director of stores uh, and a publicly listed company. And we played no shenanigans with the numbers, right? This was a, a very clean, um, respectable company. And I just didn't believe that this could happen on such a wholesale pervasive basis. So we hired our own team to go to China and look at 30 companies and come back and tell us what they saw. And after a couple of months of being over there and looking at all these 30 companies, you know, our team came back and said, the short sellers are wrong. They're understating the problem. <laughs> Fraud is pervasive and out in the open, like Potemkin villages. Yeah. So. In, in, I mean, in the movie, you, you go to a, um, I think it's Orient paper or they show, they show Orient paper in the movie. I think it was Carson Block that went there. Yeah. Yeah. Carson did that one. But it, it was, it's pretty incredible to see that that was, they had, I think reported like around a hundred million dollars in sales. They go and it looks like a junkyard, um, with, they said there were $5 million in materials and it's just absolute crap and garbage. Yeah. yeah. And so just the, the aesthetics of it alone are like, obvious. it's like, wow, this is really blatant, obvious fraud. Um, in the movie later on, also you, you, they talk about how you later discovered not through, um, not, not initially, but later on that they, in China, they were filing, um, were they S E S S E I C filings, uh, in China that were kind of like financial documents that were actually pretty accurate, but in the U S those numbers were being fudged significantly. So I mean, is it, is it true that in, in like in China, like they, they weren't really necessarily defrauding as much, but when they went in the, it's the U S bankers that got more greedy in this case, or like, tell me a little bit about how that fits in. Yeah. Well, they're called S A I C files. Uh, okay. Yeah. State administration of industry and commerce. Uh, and it's, it's one thing about a communist country. They love their paperwork. Uh, so, you know, it's not only do you have like a federal tax, but the SAIC would be like a local filing. Uh, and it, yeah, they're very accurate. And, and here, here's the binary proposition, Justin. It's not illegal in China to steal from a U.S. citizen. So these companies there that are committing fraud on us are breaking no laws in their home country. But if you steal from a Chinese citizen, you can get the death penalty. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, their numbers are more accurate there than they are here. And it's and that's why, because they they, you know, have really nothing to risk here. I mean, the only thing at risk is they won't be able to steal more money if they get caught. 
even when we've caught them stealing, which we have dozens of times, we can't even get the money back. There's, it's a one-way ticket for, for money to China. You can, there's no clawback provision. So you've got Puda Cole chairman, Ming Zhao, one of the first ones that we exposed. They stole $400 million. Can't get that money back. And as a matter of fact, a year after he did that, he was appointed to provincial Congress. So, I mean, they'll literally pin a fucking medal on you for stealing from American investors. And, and that was an yeah. aha moment for me. And that's just something that no investors were really aware of when they started investing in these companies in the uh, um, 2006 to 10 range before we started blowing the whistle. Well, you're, you're dealing with you're dealing with a different set of rules in China than you're dealing with in the U.S. And I mean, the U.S. is already a little bit lax or known to be lax financial on the financial industry, but in China, it's a whole different ball game. Like you're mentioning, now, one one of the things that that kind of blew me away in the movie, and you you um, is that for auditors, normally companies that get listed on Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange, they're audited by companies like Price Waterhouse or Deloitte. And what, what they talk about in the movie is that the the auditors um, that were actually auditing these companies were more like franchises that were based in China. And so they're described as like the, the China version of uh, Pricewaterhouse or the China version of Deloitte. And they're, they're not like, so they, there was just a lot less oversight and they were they were borrowing the brand name to add credibility to these companies. But really, they're there was no proper due diligence being done. Is that accurate? Can you, can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, there are so many parallels and, and trickle-down effects from Enron here, and this is one of them. One being the VIE structure, the variable interest entity that most of these companies are, which we can get into, um, in that you don't actually own shares in the company. You own shares in a company that has a contract with that company. Uh, and that came from Enron. and the auditor situation. You see, I mean, rather than taking down what was a big five auditor back in the day, Enron's auditor, uh, um, Arthur Anderson, what these companies decided to do was start chartering out their, their companies in different countries to wall off any kind of spillover uh, and fraud. So when you look at Price Waterhouse in China, it's not, it's not the A-team. It's not the Price Waterhouse here in the United States. It's Price Waterhouse, Shenzhen. Same thing with KPMG, same thing with Deloitte. And they, they are chartered off from the parent company. And no, I mean, an auditor will tell you, an auditor will tell you, it is not their job to catch fraud. That's not their job. No, no. that's... Yeah. This was this was an amazing part of the story because basically uh, what what is what was happening and correct me if I'm wrong is that these and the way that they did it is is a a, a, a company would a Chinese company would come in and kind of uh, partner or scoop up a. Uh, a company that was basically defunct, but still on the New York Stock Exchange and kind of umbrella themselves underneath this company that was already on the New York Stock Exchange and then and then kind of appear as the Chinese company, right? Well, it's, it's called a reverse merger or uh, a reverse takeover, an RTO. And, you know, basically there are many things that can happen that, that cause a company to just be the shell that it was. And by shell, I mean the trading shell that, that wraps around the company, the ticker symbol, the QCIP. Uh, so if, if two companies merge, right, they're left with one company, but they have two shells. So one of those shells will just be a dormant shell. And a private company looking to list on an exchange 
and circumvent the IPO procedures into something that is less rigorous can reverse merge into this empty shell and be a trading listed company kind of overnight. And then, and then the kind of the the subsidiary of Price Waterhouse, like the the, yeah. the Chinese version of Price Waterhouse, would then say, "Oh yes, this is a really great company." So they they have a a kind of a brand recognition or social proof that this company is is good, right? Well, I you know I don't know that any auditor says anything that you know like like company's great, good or bad. They you know you either have an unqualified opinion or a qualified opinion. Uh, and they would give them unqualified opinions, which, you know, to the regular investor looks like, hey, you know, this is this is a, a real company that uh, is audited by Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, who, whatever have you. So there, there are no shenanigans happening here. Um, forget about the fact that most frauds were audited by auditors like this. Um, the the real cheerleaders were probably the banks. They're the ones selling it to the investors. Uh, saying this is a great company and we went over to China and checked them out and kicked the tires and did due diligence. And therefore, if we're raising $100 million for this company, we'll take a 10% transaction fee. And they and did none of that. Were the banks often, when they were listing these companies, so let's say they, they, bring, they bring the company up into the, into the market, were they often acquiring like a ton of shares and then just dumping them as soon as the stock price jumped up? Of course. Yeah, so they weren't, were they ever holding to, or do you, I mean, I guess that's not always known, but for the most part, they were just kind of pump and dumping, right? My experience with them was they were just, they're, you know, they're out, out as soon as they can and not really looking back, um, you know. Ruthless, why, why, ruthless. And, and that's not unusual, for any bank, really. So, and, and this was this was one of the things that I I think shook me to my core the most is at one point there was uh, and I, I I don't remember which one of the characters in the movie, uh, but one of the people who was basically supposed to be like one of the auditors was like, hey, our job is not to go through the files of these companies and look at everything. That's not our job. And it it it's, it just left me with this moment, like so. Basically, there there's no one really mining the store. It's just a kind of open season because at the end of the day, there's really no auditors. Yeah, I, I think there's a basic misconception by by Main Street and much of Wall Street about what an auditor does. Uh, they they do not prepare their financial filings for a company. Company management their financial filings, their 10Qs, their, their 10Ks, or their 20F, their foreign filer. And the auditor basically just kind of checks the math, right? I mean, they're, they're a bigger version of H&R Block, right? Uh, and they have every kind of disclaimer there is in the world that says, if we're given you know, fraudulent paperwork, uh, then you know, we're, we're indemnified. We, you know, we don't know. It's not our job to go out and check. So yeah. So one of the things that I want to talk about is when you were investing, when you were with Geo Investing, you had you had kind of discovered a niche with these China-based companies that were producing huge returns before you knew what was going on behind the curtains. But at, at one point, you started to see research from some uh, of your cohorts that were exposing these as frauds, and you decided to kind of investigate for yourself. And so uh, I, I remember that with one of the the companies, I'm. Um, you have to tell me the name of the company. I'm forgetting on the top of my head here, but you you actually went out there. You set up like a camera to watch the to watch the business for almost a year, and you had like these elaborate kind of schemes where you you would send somebody to the uh, to the front desk and say that you were uh, you were you were giving out free gifts. I forget what the, the gifts were again. Free tea, yeah. Free free tea, 
And then you'd ask like, oh, how many employees do you have? So I can, uh, so I can get the proper amount, get that kind of get Intel from that. And, and you quickly discovered that what was on paper didn't match up what was right in front of your eyes. T- tell me about that. And what kind of risk were you taking? Because we've talked about the dangers of the China, Chinese laws. So tell me about the risks that were going on there and what you discovered. Well, it, it, it's not legal to do due diligence in China. Uh, I mean, there's no such thing as public property, right? So you can't stand across the street and count trucks and say, hey, I'm on public property. I'm minding my own business. Uh, you, you can get arrested there. And they have criminal defamation in China. So as you saw in the movie, Kun Hong was, I didn't even write the report, right? He just did some of the research. Uh, they scooped him up and threw him in prison for two years. Oh, wow. I, uh, I didn't realize it was two years. Wow. Uh, he's, he's, he's very affected by it. Um, it's, it was a, a terrible situation. Uh, you know, he, two years of making Christmas lights, Merry Christmas. Um, and, and that's when they weren't harassing him about, you know, media reports here in the United States about, about his situation. Remember in one case, the, uh, New York times had written about how he was arrested and railroaded and, and he's, you know, going to be put on trial. And they came and collected him and took him to the infirmary and made him clean up after TB patients uh, with no gloves and no mask. Mm. And they said, if we see another article in the United States about your situation, you'll lick it up. That's insane. And and so, the, I, I mean, my I've got so many questions here. The first one being that, okay, so there's a scheme you discovered where basically these Chinese companies were kind of being pumped into the United States. People were making a lot of money. And then there was this one point where you were like, uh-oh, I see some trouble here. Now, this, this moment, it was really interesting to me because you could have done one of two things at this particular moment. You could have said, well, uh, it doesn't matter. I'm making money, so who cares, right? Which is what a lot of people do. But you said, I, I really need to find out this doesn't sit right with me. And so you did something about it. What was the moment that you decided to make one decision versus another? Well, we weren't short sellers. And as a matter of fact, we, you know, as I had talked about, we were convinced the short sellers were wrong in making these stories up. So we, we hired our own team to go to China and look at 30 companies and, and come back. And we were just going to, you know, prove that the short sellers were lying. And after a few months of looking at these companies, our, our investigative team came back and said, yeah, the short sellers are wrong. They're understating the problem. Um, you know, fraud is pervasive. It's out in the open. It's, you know, uh, it's, you know, unqualified in, in how far they'll go. I mean, I can give you, some of the most salacious examples, they'll, they'll, if you're coming into a bank to check their, uh, their balances, they'll co-opt the bank manager. And they've done that. And they'll take you in a conference room, bank manager will come in and show you these fake reports and boom, you know, you think they're fine. Uh, they've built websites that were fake bank websites. Uh, they, they do all kinds of things. You saw in the movie, where you had this factory that's we're filming for 30 days, there's absolutely nothing going on. Then one day, lights go on. The next day, smoke starts coming out of the smokestacks. What's happening here? Third day, a bus shows up with a bunch of American investors. They show them around the facility and put them back on the bus. They leave, 
turn everything off again. That's incredible. That's incredible. So it's like a movie set almost. It is. They're Potemkin villages. Yeah. And when, when people would say, look, you know, I met with management, I went to the facility. I'm like, you can't go by appointment. <laughs> you, know, you show up a few days early and see what you see. Yeah, and that's uh, that that's incredible. But see, but that this is my point, which is I, I I feel that a lot of investing has to do with confirmation bias, where you're thinking this confirms the fact that I'm going to make money on this particular thing, so right. I, I don't really care what the real implications are. And I think there's like a plausible deniability, but people still know there's something up, uh, obviously. So so but but that and that's my question. Like like you saw that this was happening, and so you could use that information and not really expose any of this, but you did something kind of uncanny, which is you created a report and released it. Yeah. And, and, and so, so what, what factored that decision to happen? Because that's going above and beyond instead of just not saying anything, instead of just deciding, Hey, this is, I'm going to just follow this and make money from it. You, you did something that would actually cost you money in the long run. Can you talk about that moment and why did you, what was the moment that you like, I have to do this? I don't care what the consequences are. That Edward Snowden type of moment. Well, first, as, as an overall comment to what you just said, what, what I found in the last 10 years, unfortunately, in general, American investors would rather make money on fraud than lose money on the truth. So what we have to say is not very well received uh, at any given time. Uh, and as far as putting out the report, I mean, truthfully, it catalyzes my position, too. If you can build up a reputation for for being good at what you do and telling the truth, and um, then you put out a report, and if you have a short position, it does it does create a catalyst. So there is a, a monetary incentive for us there. I think what was different for me was this is not like investing, right? Investing is a rising tide lifts all boats. This is a binary proposition. Somebody wins, somebody loses. And when you think about this, it's not the regular kind of short selling where, or even against a pump and dump where somebody might go to jail, right? Because they're here in the United States and they have the laws. The people that were losing were my family, my neighbors, fellow Americans who had no idea that this was happening. And and that's why I went to Congress and started trying to educate our members of Congress about the fact that it's not illegal in China to steal from American investors. They didn't even know that. Uh, and when I decided to do that, you know, the other short sellers in mass were completely pissed off. They're like, <laughs> what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? Why would you want to change this? We're all making money, and they just didn't get the fact that we were making money off, you know destroying our country and our pensions and our savings. And, and that right there, that's the thing that, that I find so admirable really about what you did, because uh, it, it wasn't quite whistleblowing, although it was, and there's been a climate lately in this country of trying to vilify uh, whistleblowers, but you, you did something that basically was like holding up a mirror and saying, this is, this is the truth. And we're living in a country where the truth isn't really appreciated. <laughs> you know, the climate of truth and, and, and honesty and integrity is like, it, it's wavery at best right now. Uh, so, so let me ask you this, cause this wasn't covered. Was there at any time when you really started to knock down these companies? Cause you, you became almost like a, like an investigative short seller? Is that the, the yeah. correct? It's an activist short. 
active yeah. short seller. Yeah. So you, I mean, you, you would find these companies, but you would be able, you would, so would you short them on purpose knowing that you were going to take them down? I still do. Yeah. So that's, that's incredible. So it's almost like uh, you're profiting now, but you're profiting from exposing the truth. To that regard, because you just mentioned that you still do, what like how rampant is this problem still in 2020 versus in 2009, 2010, 11, 12? Is it still this massive, massive problem? Is it smaller than it used to be? Like, to, what? How big is this? Like to this day? Well, in in 2010, there was about a hundred billion dollars worth of uh, China-based companies listed on our exchange. Today, there's over a trillion. 1.2 trillion. Okay. Uh, not counting Hong Kong, which is another, you know, trillion or two. Not including the rebalancing of the MSCI Emerging Market Index, which has now 40% weighted to China and Hong Kong. So it's a much bigger problem. It's a much, much bigger problem. Wow, that's incredible. And so uh, here's here's the, the the thing I'm wondering when you started to expose some of these companies, and you, you know we're talking millions and millions and tr- billions of dollars in some cases when you add it all up. Uh, what did, was there any time that you feared for your safety around any of this? Uh, you know, in the beginning, look, <laughs> when you go back ten years, there there are a lot of firsts that. I'm, I'm not as concerned with these days. You know, my, my first hundred million dollar lawsuit was, uh, was, was one of them. I don't care how tough you think you are when, when you have a hundred million dollar lawsuit set on your desk and you know, you, 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 you kind of get a lump in your throat. <laughs> you might, you might doubt uh, yourself a bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess, well, I guess you said something bad about David Nunez, huh? Yeah, is, that, well, is that what happened? Right, well, whatever. <laughs> I mean, now I, now I call it a Tuesday. It's fine. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't been sued in weeks. Been wonderful. Oh wow! For weeks, nice. Yeah, um, and and yeah, there were there were things about your safety that you're concerned with, but really, that's come more on the political end, where I've been political in the last few years. Is uh, as, as far as like from these public companies in China, I mean, think about it. They steal fifty million bucks. They can't go to jail. They get to keep the money. Why ramp things up by going over to the United States and having somebody killed? I mean, then you're then you're really causing yourself a, an international problem. So that generally isn't something I fear from the investing side of it. Actually, the, the one time I was confronted and and somebody was uh, wanting to fight about it was I, somebody lost two or three thousand dollars in their ETARD account and uh, decided to show up in my driveway and. Uh, tell me that I'm wrong. And he's right because he pressed buy. Uh, and <laughs> good for you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was a, uh, it was going to be an uncomfortable moment for him, but he was somebody that lived locally and he, you know, and I, I felt for him and I talked to him for a little bit. I mean, it was, you know, it, it started out, it was going to be physical. And then in the end, you know, here's just a guy that's just confused. He's hurt. He lost his family's money. He feels stupid. He doesn't know what to do. The company's not speaking to him. So I just kind of sat and talked to him for a minute. I said, look, you know what? Anything you want to know about this company and our investigation, I'll be happy to talk to you about. Now, have you called the company? Yeah, they can't speak to me. Their lawyers won't let them. I'm like, you think my lawyers want me to talk to you? (laughs) But I will because I want you to understand your money is gone. And here's why. And you need to talk to your local representative. 
And this is this is the thing is so crazy. It's like I, I and I don't I don't quite understand this. After the financial crisis happened, uh, you would think that it was like, oh well, we've got to shore this stuff up now. And in fact, they almost created more loopholes to make it even easier to steal money on the stock market. Well, they just moved fraud offshore uh, and, and made it harder because the SEC can't investigate in China, right? They're uh, that would be considered spying. So they can't do one ounce of due diligence over there. Uh, it, it's really not their fault. They can request documents, but they can't actually kick the tires and do what I do over there. Yeah, so they skirted, uh, they skirted the rules, basically. Yeah, and now one of the more interesting scenes about this w- was when you actually went to Congress to find out if your representative would bring this up and say something about it. And and he like left early and just kind of left you hanging. And it was like yeah. an opportunity to really out fraud. And yet it was just kind of like nobody wanted to touch it. Yeah, that was Senator Toomey, which is, you know, that's interesting in and of itself. I'd met with his staff three times and Senator Casey, for that matter, and and uh, as well as uh, many financial services committee members at that point. Uh, but the, Toomey and Casey are my, were my home state senators in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Republican. Um, socially moderate, fiscally conservative, obviously. Uh, so I fit nowhere because I'm a radical moderate. Um, You're, in other words, a real Republican. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> you know, a George H.W. Bush Republican. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. If he had his son's charisma or his son had his brains, we'd had a good president. Really good. <laughs> uh, so, and and it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, from referring to Senator Toomey as a motherfucker in the movie uh, and then running for Congress in 2018 – living 30 miles away from him in his party, that was uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was not a supporter. But in my defense, he is a motherfucker. So, <laughs> you know, I don't take it back. So do you do you run for Congress just to, to kind of spite him because he was not paying attention? Was it was it kind of to get attention to your cause? I mean, did you did you ever think you were going to win when you ran for Congress or how like tell me about that? Well, I, you know. Uh, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars losing. So, um, okay. I, uh, so it was legit then. Oh, I absolutely did. And, and look, my, I, I did 17 town halls for Democrats, Republicans, independents, all alike, uh, that are still up on my Facebook page that people can see my, my policies and, and, and my platform, you know, my opponent did none of that, but look, when you have a 7%, voter registration lead and the vote really was all about Trump. Right. So it's you were either voting for him or against him and you didn't really care who was in Congress. Plus now, did you see like anti anti Dan ads running on Facebook? Did that, did that happen? Um, there were, there was some of that, but I'm, I'm I'm a little immune to that. I mean, you know, people have been, you know, sending me pictures of, uh, uh, missiles going into my house since 2011. Uh, wow. You know, it's yeah. I mean, the things that bothered you back then on on message boards and Twitter and whatever. I'm just like, what the fuck? Well, I got I got to ask you about the, uh, the the short selling because one of the, one of the things you say in the movie is that when you when you identify a fraud, you don't care about the trend line. A fraud's a fraud. You're going to short it and you're just going to wait until it collapses. 
how how often no, uh, go ahead i'm not waiting i'm not waiting i'm gonna make it collapse you're gonna make it collapse by, by releasing the yeah, data and that's, exposing that, and the truth just, to it i just but, want to reiterate let me, this. On. let me finish yeah um how how often do like you find a true fraud you know for a fact it's a fraud but the stock price doesn't move even if you release the data i mean is it consistent that when you release the data the stock price does drop or uh, how, i mean tell me about that because i i'm always very curious about that well, there's, you know, the manipulation, it's, it's funny because people will, you know, especially I found with frauds, right? They, they accuse you of the very things that they're doing. Uh, maybe in their mind that justifies what they're doing, right? Uh, but they, they'll manipulate their stock. There are times where you can get squeezed. Uh, and yeah, they're, you know, I, I can remember CGA, China Green Agriculture, which was in the movie. I, I in the beginning, unlike most shorts, and this was a naivete, again, running for Congress, naive, and doing what I'm about to tell you is naive, but I wanted to always speak to management before I put out a report. And at a certain point in time, me calling management meant one thing to management. <laughs> <laughs> Dump the stock? <laughs> well, it, you know, it meant get ready for battle, right? Yeah. So I remember with CGA in particular, there was, there was the main investor in that company, I called him up and he knew who I was and he just shit himself. He's just like, Oh my God, you know, these guys have to talk to you. You've got to get to the bottom of this or I'm going to sell my shares and whatever. So he set up a call with uh, Lee Tao, the chairman of the company uh, for uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Right. Uh, and our report was done, but I wanted to ask him about, you know, some of the, some of the finer details of the report, get his response. And 9:45, they issue a press release calling me a financial terrorist, saying that I'm probably going to put out this report. Oh, and by the way, we just signed a contract with Nestle. Oh. <laughs> None of which is true. But I mean, the stock just goes crazy, right? I mean, my computer starts making sounds I never thought it could make. Uh, it was it was bad. My, you know, And when you're borrowing shares, that can get recalled. So if you cover those shares on the way up, you may not be able to borrow it again on the way down. Hmm. Uh, so it's best to to box a position when you're doing before you put out a report. Interesting. Um, yeah, and this is this is the thing about that what you were doing that was so fascinating to me is that rather than just you know saying oh well I think this company you actually were, were doing your due diligence looking for companies too short so you could make money off of that and uh, and so in in one way you're like exposing fraud but also making money. Uh, and that's an interesting twist on how to turn a negative thing into something that's positive, kind of a win-win. No, it's not a win-win. It's not a win for the long holders of the stock. Well, definitely not. But you're exposing something that 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 should be exposed. And uh, to this day, that loop, those loopholes still exist, right? This is, they as do. you were saying, it's still going on. They do, yeah. Well, tell wow. me about like Luck and Coffee. I mean, that's the most recent yeah. example that was all over the news. Luck and Coffee yeah. was this bullish stock that everybody was big on that was taking on Starbucks in um, in China, in mainland China. And, yeah. and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it turns out that they've been fabricating financials. I, I don't know what exposed it. I don't know if, uh, if if people that you know were involved in shorting it or involved in the research. Uh, but I know that the stock crashed because I own some of it, and it's what brought my attention to you in the movie. So tell me about like a little bit about what happened with Luck and Coffee. I'm sure you have some insights. Yeah, Carson Block tweeted that out. He's in the movie, and Carson is uh, is an investor in my firm, Wolfpack. Uh, so 
I, I am affiliated with his his firm, Muddy Waters Research. Mm-hmm. And, and Carson was really the innovator in all of this. He's exposed ONP, Orient Paper. Uh, I remember when he did that in 2010, I believe it was, I was at a Rodman and Renshaw conference, one of the banks that did these things. And, and, and people are just, you know, shitting themselves reading this report and thinking it can't be true. Uh, but he's been doing this for a long time. He has a fund now, I believe it's like 300 million under AUM. And it's basically all he does as well as, is is short fraud. Um, so he, he, interestingly, he and I and several other, uh, as they put it in the email, prominent uh, short activists got a, uh, a research report out of China about two days before he tweeted it out. And I didn't even, I didn't even click on it because, I mean, look, I get, I get fished all the time out of China. And the last report I put out on IQ, I got 1 trillion hits to my website to take me down. Uh, wow. wow. Yeah. Wonderful people uh, uh, running that government. Um, so he did look at it. He did see it. He knew who did the report, even though it was unattributed and anonymous and felt that it was valid. So he tweeted it out and, you know, look, this is one of those cases that you're talking about, right? That it went down 15% initially in January and then right back up. Right, because people weren't taking it seriously, and it's it's kind of what's happened in the last ten years. In the in the first couple of years, call it 2010 to 2013, when these fraud allegations came out about these companies, the Nasdaq or NYSE would halt the stock. There'd be an investigation, and there'd be some kind of conclusion. Since then, they've made the strategic decision. They're not halting anything, and they're letting the market play it out, and not a lot of these frauds have been exposed since then as far as um, on the spot from being halted in an investigation. So this took like 30, 40 days after Carson originally tweeted that out for this thing to fall apart. Yeah. Well, it seems like coronavirus also played a role in it because the stock kind of dropped after the uh, coronavirus. And I think maybe that made it harder to hide the financials. I'm not, I'm not sure. No. One of the, one of the directors, which is unusual – uh, had a crisis of conscience and asked for an investigation, internal investigation. And, and, and this fraud was so obvious that that's what came out of it. Uh, and, and I'll just say, look, this is the biggest problem we have in this country uh, and with the China listed stocks as well, is a complete lack of corporate governance in any of our companies. There is no such thing as an independent director anymore. Like these are these are all inside jobs, right? They're getting fifty to two hundred thousand dollars a year to be on the board. They're getting all of these stock options. They do nothing on behalf of the shareholder, and it is specifically a director's job to be the representative of the shareholder for the company. Yeah, and they're not. They manipulate them too by like the the luminaries. I mean, bringing in uh, Wesley Clark to one of those firms. I mean, isn't that just like pure manipulation to try to add credibility to what they're doing? Even though it's, I mean, he probably had no idea what was happening. Maybe he did. I don't know. Um, But he, you know, he's lending his name to something without kind of knowing what's behind it. Uh, And and the only reason they're doing that is to again get people's confidence in what they're selling. Yeah, all the all the boards do that. They want names on their board, right? Like you know, uh, but you know, 
when you join a board, you have you have a job. You it's your job to protect investors. And if you're not doing that, then you're not doing your job. And that's that's the problem with most of our public companies here today. I mean, you think about it even with Enron and WorldCom and Tyco, how many directors paid a fine or went to jail? Yeah, no, it's so true. Well, l- l- let me let me ask you this because I mean, this is this is obviously it's it's so explosive because it's obvious rampant fraud and and there's nothing being done about it. Uh, so the big question I have first of all is: Was there anything that was in not in the movie that you were you, you like that wasn't covered in in the film, but it is an incredible sort of bit of information or story about what's happening? Uh, I, it's just you know. I don't think they could get how vicious the fights get between the company and the short seller and the banks. Uh, it's it it gets pretty bad. I mean, I've I've been in a you know running gun battle with some of these companies for a year or two before it gets you know a, you know finally taken care of. Well, how big are your short positions? How much? I mean, are you? I mean, are you crippling the brand with the short positions? Like what? Like how big are these things? Well, three hundred million dollars I could put towards one. Yeah. Okay. So huh. it's legit. <laughs> it, incredible. So, so what do you think that the? Can you predict like kind of where this is going? Because obviously this is a huge bubble. Bubbles pop. So what? How how do you predict the economy going now? Especially because it it seems like the stock market dropped after Corona hit. It's going up, but but what's what what's the outcome of all of this? Um, tears. <laughs> I mean, do, do you do you have an idea of like how, how like a scenario where this might implode? Yeah. I, what do you mean by this? Uh, well, well, just like the the fact that the economies well, have, in both China and the U.S. have kind of stopped. How about the fact that like the a lot of the stocks are now trading above the levels of pre-coronavirus? Right. Uh, <laughs> and, Look, I, you know, getting away from just even China for a second. I mean, yeah. let, let me just be clear: we are fucked. This is this is a it is a very bad situation with our debt, and it, people are just you know oblivious again to how, how big of a problem this is. They're like, oh well, you know, what's what's a few trillion dollars here or there? It's a lot. Number one, you can't just say we're not going to pay back China because it doesn't even matter. They only own like a trillion dollars worth of our debt. Who do we owe? We owe ourselves. We owe Social Security. We owe. Uh, you know, uh, the Fed, we owe unfunded pensions and liabilities. So 70% of our debt is to ourselves. So when we don't pay back the debt, we're not paying Social Security back. We're not paying ourselves back. And when you talk about like getting to 25, 26, 27 trillion dollars in debt, we're now looking at, at, at our current ridiculously low interest rates, getting near a debt service expense of what we spend on our military, six, seven hundred billion a year and just and just interest alone, which is what we spend on our military, six hundred, seven hundred billion a year. So if our interest rates go up to where they should be, we're spending over a trillion dollars a year just in interest. We're never gonna get our hands around this thing. Yeah. So I, I mean, is there is there any kind of solution that you see? Like how would be the way that 
like because you you decided to take a stand and become an activist trader, which I I love the 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 title of that. But how how can the average citizen who's maybe not invested like where where can you move the needle in all of this? Well, that's you know that's what they've done here. I mean, when when I was growing up, there were there were different avenues for making money, right? You had venture capital and say you have your own business, your own grocery store, you have the stock market is one. You could put money in a bank account and get 3% interest. Remember those days? Yeah. Uh, or 6% on a CD or things of this nature. Now it costs you money to have a bank account. And this is causing one of the biggest um, deltas between the rich and the poor, right? Because you know, the, the disadvantaged are not going to have a trading account. So they're going to miss out on on those returns. It costs them money to have a bank account, so they're getting 3% compounded interest taken away from them. And it's, it's causing a bigger gap in our wealth. Uh, and you've got people in their 80s and 90s who have no business having all their money in the stock market, but where else can they put it? Yeah. Yeah. You you grew up in in Flint, Michigan. I found that kind of interesting because uh, you share a hometown with uh, Michael Moore, who has a I'm going to say a different political ideology than you, <laughs> but uh, but you share the same the same hometown and uh, and kind of the, the same story in terms of watching kind of the infrastructure around you crumble, and, and it kind of had different impacts. I, I would imagine. But tell me, like, what was that like, or how how did that like affect you, like, just watching all that crumble? I know you touch on it in the movie a little bit, but like, what was that really like for you? Uh, it was heartbreaking. And Michael Moore was not wrong about Roger yeah. and me. It's one of one of his best pieces of work. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was nineteen uh, when that came out, nineteen or twenty, and I remember everybody in Flint hated him for for making that movie. And I, I didn't I didn't see it when it came out. I, it was interesting. I was I was in line to see a Steven Seagal movie with my you know twelve year old uh, cousin, and Michael Moore is standing at the front of the line saying to everybody, "Are you going to see my movie? Are you going to see my movie?" And I get up there and I felt bad for the guy, right? So I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'm going to see your movie." <laughs> uh, of yeah, course, he was pretty small time back then. Yeah, yeah. Of course, my cousin looks up at me like I just shot him in the head. I'm like, "Yeah, don't worry." About it. <laughs> right. So we we go in to see the Steven Seagal movie, and we sit down near the front. And you know, as the movie starts, we hear this rumbling behind us, and I look back, and walking down the aisle is Michael Moore. Oh, and, yeah. And my cousin, Matt, he's like, oh, my God, he's coming to get us. And I was like, what? And, it, and then he walks right by us with a big tub of popcorn and a big soda and sits down two rows in front of us. And I was like, <laughs> I was like see, see, Matt. Was it Under Siege? Was that the Seagal movie? Do you remember? Mark for Death. <laughs> Mark for Death. Okay, before yeah. that even. Okay. <laughs> I was like, see, he doesn't even watch documentaries. Uh, so, But I, I ended up renting the movie six months later, and it really changed my life in a lot of ways. Uh, it was so dead on accurate. And it's so what I lived in the 80s, where in the 70s, you know, things were good. People working in the shop, everybody worked in the shop. And if in even if you didn't work there, your livelihood came from there. My father had an Allstate agency and like everybody he insured worked at the shop. So and it, it was interesting how it informed my investigations as well, uh, because when we were looking at these factories, we would speak to we would speak to the businesses around the factory about the factory and we put that in our reports 
And the auditors and the bankers absolutely went ballistic. How can you speak to a shopkeeper that says, you know, there are 10% of the employees that they claim, you know? And that came from my experience in General Motors because everybody around that shop, the the restaurants, the the 7-Elevens, whatever, knew exactly what was happening in that shop because that was their livelihood. Mm. They knew everything about it. And you could get anything you wanted in there. There's, you know, at Buick City, there were 30,000 employees in one place. Um, of course. And that was the middle class. I mean, that that's the that is the segment of the population that basically propped up the entire country for, you know, after the war until the 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Uh, and it also taught me a lot about human nature because, you know, you had people there with, you know, barely a high school education that uh, made sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Back in the 80s, that was pretty good money. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So they had a house. They had two cars. They had two snowmobiles. They had two boats uh, and nobody saved any money. So when General Motors started to move out, uh, it devastated that town because, you know, people really were. We're just spending everything they made. And General Motors lied. I mean, they lied to everybody. They said, you know, we're just going to be, you know, across the river in Canada. Uh, and then it was Mexico. And then, it's, you know, it, they just really devastated Flint, Michigan. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's never really, uh, really recovered from them. Um, so, okay, so the economy, basically, at some point, it sounds like you have, you have uh, no hope uh, for it. What do you, what's your opinion on cryptocurrency? Like, what do you see? How, do you see that playing is, a role? Is it a hedge? Yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, cryptocurrency is here to stay. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not that involved in it. But I remember uh, the FBI came to my office uh, one time just after the campaign because they had picked up on a, me being spied on by China. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, welcome to the fucking party, pal. That's been happening for <laughs> 10 years. But if you guys want to come in and see my computers, that's fine. They came in and they, they mirrored all my computers so that they could, they could you know, possibly collect some names, I guess. But when they were asking about investing and what we do, all they wanted to know about was cryptocurrency. And it was for their own personal portfolios. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny. You know, I'm like, okay, so you guys, you guys, and they, de- they were dealing with money laundering and things of that nature. One of the guys there was involved in it. And yeah, he felt very strongly that, you know, cryptocurrency is here to stay. Yeah, it's uh, it, based it, on what, though? Well, him, you I mean. know, what, one of the things that I, I actually see a scenario playing out at some point, uh, which I don't know if this would ever happen, but it, at some point, if there was someone who basically came up with a platform that was easy enough, right. we, we as a planet could switch to a c- cryptocurrency based uh, system. People could start taking cryptocurrencies as payment and and it would basically shut out the banks and destroy the stock market because there'd be it would be like a whole system just coming down all at once and switching to another system. But is it weird that it trades like a stock? I mean, it trades like it's an investment uh, like up at, you know, you're 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 not even using it. You're buying it for value. Is that I mean, the way it trades like that right now, it doesn't seem like it will ever be used as a currency until it stops or it stables out. Well, money trades that way, too. Uh, so but that, that, not at that level of volatility, though, right? Well, it's it's only it's only volatile because, you know, people don't understand it. Uh, and, and it's, you know, as Andrew says, there, there's no great user platform for it. Uh, but to answer your original question, what, what did what did the FBI agent think it was based on that it was going to be here to stay? Number one, it is it is how dark money 
will flout sanctions like North Korea, China, uh, the you know drug cartels. More and more, they're getting rung up by using banks like HSBC and whoever else. And cryptocurrency is is something they can use. Number two, nobody trusts banks anymore. Um, it, it's just a canard to think honest banker. Uh, and and three, you know what's the value of cryptocurrency pegged to? I could ask you the same question about dollars. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah, after they took off the gold standard, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what what can the average the average citizen like myself, like I have a, a tiny tiny bit of savings, uh, like how how would what can we short? Yeah, no, I, like <laughs> no. what can we do to like help bring light to this or the way that we spend our money? I mean, like, I, do you see that the average person can even do anything about this? No. Um, I mean, you could, you can, there, there are a couple of things you could do. I, I, what I was saying no to is don't show it if you don't know how to do it. So many yeah. bad things can happen, right? You, you invest $10,000 in a stock. The most you can lose is 10,000. You short $10,000 worth of stock. Your losses could be infinite. Um, remember the CGA story. Uh, yeah. what you can do is, is talk to your local representative and support reciprocity between, uh, us in China, a bilateral investment treaty. Um, you know, I, on any given day, I'm not a big fan of President Trump, but I do appreciate how he has gone after China. Even though I have my issues with the current trade deal, it's progress uh, that that the last three administrations didn't even attempt. So I'll give a compliment when one is due. Not that he won't compliment himself anyway, but <laughs> you know, let's just acknowledge it. Um, but yeah, you can do that. You cannot. You can ask your investment advisor not to be invested in any China-based companies. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you: this is like going a little bit of a different direction, but I, I was curious because um, you, you mentioned in two thousand eight you you had run a you had run a hedge fund and it had big losses. Did you ever catch any wind of what was going on in two thousand eight and ever take any short positions in the? Um, uh, why am I blanking on that? The uh, credit default swaps uh, that no. were betting against. Uh, did you catch wind of that, or was that all no. like kind of a that was something that kind of escaped you? Is that is that also what kind of motivated you to figure out like the different frauds that were happening? Or? Yeah, I was tired. Of, I was tired of being lied to. I mean, I was tired yeah. of it. And then you know, w- with the this you know the China hustle, you go to these investment banks and they'd be like, oh, this company's the best thing since popcorn. I mean, you've got to invest in it. It's you know. Yeah. And, and they're going up 100% a year, so you feel like you do have to invest in it. And sometimes they even had an investor presentation, and sometimes they had notes written down on the back of a cocktail napkin, but people would still buy it. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. And, I feel like the giveaway is when the banks are throwing uh, these giant parties with Brett Michaels and, yeah. uh, and all these big rock stars. That's a giveaway. There's some fraud going on somewhere. I think that's the hint. You know that <laughs> asshole sent me a cease and desist letter for the movie? Uh, really? Yeah. Unfucking believable. Number one. <laughs> I, I saw that at the end of the movie, Wesley Clark, the uh, general Wesley Clark was, he, he like changed his stance and, and you guys, uh, the producer still left his clip in the movie, but I just thought that was fascinating that like he, he completely 180 at the end and yeah, he realized, like, oh wait, this is, this is actually kind of negative against me. It makes me look bad. Um, <laughs> now that I say this out loud, yeah. <laughs> shit. Well, I, look, my, my whole problem, I, I don't think that, General Clark was complicit in fraud. I don't. Yeah. Uh, but I doubt it too. My yeah. problem is at some point he knew it was happening. He left the company. Uh, but why do I have to go to Washington 
and talk to members of Congress when he should be doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's a guy that ran for president and knows all the heavy hitters. Yeah. Right. He's got all the lobbyists. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Why, why, why was it me? I mean, and this is a question my wife would ask me all the time. Why does it have to be you? Why do you know? Do you think you can save the world? No, but I can do this. And, and yeah. no one else will. Well, I, I don't know. You know, none of the other shorts wanted to do it. Wesley Clark sure the fuck wasn't doing it. Um, you know, Byron Roth wasn't going to do it. He's, you know, he's throwing his parties and sending me cease and desist letters. I mean, Mark Cuban owns the movie. I'm on a cease and desist letter with Mark Cuban and, and, and Alex Gibney. Uh, and, you know, his, his reason for putting me on there was that I, I was uh, the, uh, uh, the emotional impetus. So <laughs> I, had his, uh, I had his cease and desist letter made in a toilet paper and sent it back to him. Uh, does, Mark, does Mark Cuban does he short these stocks too? I mean, uh, um, does yeah. he take these kind of positions? Like, what was his interest in in the movie? Uh, or do you know? Yeah, uh, so we had produced the movie for the first year for our own because, like, you know, I got I got sick of being shut out of Congress and and them doing nothing for for three years. I was trying to work with them, uh, and I said, okay, well, l- let's put some of this stuff on on video. Uh, and we spent a year doing interviews with Kuhn Hong and some of these other players. I didn't see myself as being the lead protagonist in this movie. I didn't know I was narrating the movie when, when I was actually, when they were shooting it. Uh, there were many compromises made in this. I didn't want to go back to Flint. We had to make a deal for that. Um, they weren't filming my partner, uh, and they were cutting him out of the movie. And I said, look, if you put him in it, then I'll, uh, I'll go back to Flint. So they sat and filmed him for three hours and they cut him out of it anyway, which, <laughs> yeah, which caused me a lot of problems. Assholes. Yeah. I mean, that's Hollywood talk, right? You want to, you know, <laughs> you, whenever somebody in Hollywood tells you it's a great idea, they mean it's a really dumb idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> call me when you're in town. Let's do lunch. Don't ever call me again. <laughs> you look yeah. great. You look great. If you've been working out, get the wide angle lens. He gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I worked in Hollywood for uh, for a decade, so yeah, that's uh, it's it's all, right. all psychopaths. Well, are, are, are you thinking about doing any other type of media like this to get more information out? Or are you kind of like letting that sit? Like, what are you doing now? Uh, you ra- you ran for government, which is amazing. You you made a movie. So so how? What are you doing now? Well, I you know I still am an activist. Short, we you know put out two reports this year on China-based companies, um, uh, IQ. Uh, ICE, which is, you know, the Netflix of China, or I call the net fraud of China. Uh, <laughs> and QTT, Chu Tao Tao, was a news aggregating company in China, which is total bullshit. Uh, so I still do what I do there. I'm playing with different mediums, like maybe doing a, a podcast of my short positions, rather than just writing a dry kind of a financial report three or four 10 minute segments where I'll talk about the fraud and you can read the report as well. If you want, uh, Carson and I are playing around with doing different kinds of things like that. Um, I love that idea. Yeah. Podcast is great. Listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's where we're going to go with this. Carson has pitched a couple of ideas, um, um, to different networks about what we do. I'm not that interested in that. I didn't really want to be in the movie as much as I was. Uh, it just, you know, that's the way yeah. it happened. 
Let me, when you talk about these these stocks that are um, like the net fraud, the uh, IQ, whatever it is, EYI or, or however it is, um, can people, is it, what are your take on like put options, like people that are kind of betting against them? Is that too costly? Is that why it doesn't make sense? Or like, what would you say about like putting put options on something like that? Not, not that to give investment advice, but from a general perspective, what's the risk uh, with that versus shorting? Well, I mean, if you're not controlling the narrative, then it's a great risk. I mean, I yeah, definitely. But I do control the narrative, so uh, yeah. I, I'll I'll take put options. But you know, when I put out my IQ report, I was also on Bloomberg later that day. I don't know how many people can do that. Um, yeah, not not too many. You have to have some connections to kind of pull that off on the same day, <laughs> right? This is incredible. Well, we've got to wrap up the show. I mean, this is this is an amazing story, and I uh, I really appreciate what you're uh, what you're doing. Uh, where can people find this information? I mean, there's the movie, but if they want to find out more about like the the reports you put out, uh, how do they find you? How do they invest with you? Like, uh, can you give us uh, where we we can find you? Yeah, I don't take outside money. I just invest my own money. Um, you can see my reports. I put them out on Twitter. It's uh, at Wolfpack Reports on Twitter. Uh, I have a site, WolfpackResearch.com. That'll uh, it'll go out on that. You follow Muddy Waters as well. Uh, that's Carson Block's uh, firm. He does, still in my opinion, the best short activist in the world. Uh, so that's definitely somebody you should follow. Uh, Jim Chanos who's in the movie, uh, does quite a bit of this as well. You can follow him. Yeah, we'd love to have a couple of them on our show as well. If they, we'll, have to, we'll have to see if they're interested. But I, I'd love to hear more about this story because it's just, it's just fascinating to me what's really going on behind the curtain. And nobody knows about this. From a general perspective, like from a general perspective, nobody knows that this even happened to begin with, mm. let alone that it's still happening now. Um, so, I mean, from, I, I, I'm just telling you, like everybody that I know that I, I've mentioned this movie to just has no idea. So there's still a lot of work to be done to bring awareness to this. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys are doing it. I really appreciate this because I, I mean, this is why I take my time to do it. I still have to get that information out there so that people can, can, you know, uh, be informed. Yeah. And it, it just makes you wonder like how many other of these mechanisms are just set up. So people who are not you can make money. Uh, but, uh, all of them. All of them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The system's rigged. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, man. I, I so appreciate you being on the show. Thank uh, you. And well, we do have to we do have to ask though. Yes. Like, what are What are you geeky about right now? It's our favorite question to ask. And when we're saying geeky, you you could say it might be about finances, but we also want to hear what you're geeky about in media, what you're consuming, what movies, kind of TV shows, games, yeah, all, all that. Movies, TV shows, games. I mean, if I, any, <laughs> you know, anything that gets gets information faster uh and and the truest information you can get because i mean it shit is so biased out there anymore on both sides of it uh so um I, i'm really geeky about the newest technology right i mean you know i like i like having my iphone watch where it's it's a phone too right i can make phone calls i get real-time alerts like i can be up to date on stuff um and, and just, you know, staying on top of the frauds. Like, I was pretty geeky about the the Elizabeth Holmes story and Ther- Theranos. That was, yeah, yeah, that was amazing. I just watched that documentary, like, just a couple days ago. I had not, I didn't know that much about that one, too. That's very uh, interesting. Yeah, read the book. It's, it's amazing 
how many people get lulled into this fraud? And I go back to this, that we would just rather make money on a fraud than lose money on the truth. And that was, that was a clear indication of how true that is. Uh, and we have, to, we have to really start investing with our principles again. I mean, because if you look at China, right, they, they invest in their principal beliefs. They will spend money and lose money based on their beliefs. We're only spending and losing money to make more. And that's how they get us. They, they pay us off every single time. But you can't do it there. Like, for instance, just I know we want to wrap up the show, but understand that when we expose a company in China, their competitors who they're raising money here in the United States to put their competitors out of business. Right. I mean, that's kind of how that works. Will not inform on them. They will not. So they'd rather go out of business than inform on a company in their country that's committing fraud against U.S. investors. That's what we're up against. Wow. That's, and that's, that, that's a lot of corruption. I mean, it, it's, I, I, I wonder It's how, a social pressure. It's a lot of social pressure. So, I mean, so how, how do you think the elections, I, I, you don't have to answer this, but how do you think the election's going to play out then? Like a shit show. I, I, mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, are we going to be able to go out and vote? Um, you know, it's, Probably not. <laughs> yeah. You've got two people that running for president that can't string sentences together. It's, it, I can't even fucking believe we're in the position. <laughs> I really can't. Uh, I, I, you know, both accused of, you know, whatever. Uh, it, yep. it is, it's just amazing where we're at right now. We cannot get back to, I don't know, the, the, um, the moral outlook <laughs> of, uh, the moral outlook of a, of a Jimmy Carter and the competency of a, a Reagan or a Bush or whatever. It's just been, or even Clinton, right? Uh, yeah. It, it's so far left now and so far right. It, it was amazing that I even got through the primary as a moderate because the primary is probably the biggest problem we have in politics right now. You can't get through unless you're hard right or you're hard left. And yeah. then how do you walk that back in a general? And you can't get through if you're not running for a major party, which is, I think, yeah. a huge travesty because there's so many Republicans out there that are uh, that are moderate uh, socially or, they're, or liberal socially even, but, yeah. but fiscally conservative yeah, I'm one of them. that are kind of trapped and they don't really have there's no other outlet. That's they have no option. So it's right. It, it's wrong is what I think. And, and then you can go to the Democratic Party, which is like, I mean, like everything's for free. That's that's not going to yeah, work. It's the same thing. You have you have a mix there too. You have you have moderate Democrats and you have uh, you have left Democrats. And there's there's really like four parties. I mean, just look at this. The, look at the the line and as far left, far right, and then the, and kind of in the middle. Uh, I'd like I'd love it if we had four parties, but I don't. Apparently, yeah, that's impossible. But if you go all the way to the left and all the way to the right, it's basically the same sort of thing uh, on on either side. It's just it's bananas. Well, heads I, or tails, yeah. I gotta say, I, I, I predicted this was going to happen, uh, three years ago and that's why I moved to the Netherlands. So there, <laughs> oh. there you go. Uh, one, I do have to add that the, uh, Elizabeth Holmes in that movie is, uh, you can just tell she's a psycho just from looking at her, that, that stare that she has the most intense stare I've ever seen in my life. Even crazy watching a documentary. It's like cra- yeah, it's true, true craziness. There's, we, we were, <laughs> we were dying for her to actually go public. Like all the shorts knew that this was bullshit. Uh, I'm, I'm, really? ha- okay. I'm happy that they never IPO'd because that means more public investors didn't lose money. Yeah, but, that's true. But if they would have, I mean, it, think about WeWork, 
and, and what happened with them. That was shorts. That was short sellers screaming the alarm before WeWork ever went public. Otherwise, SoftBank was going to take them public at this ridiculous valuation and how many people would have been cut in half. But yeah. it's, it's one of the things that shorts do for the market. Well, Airbnb was about to go public weeks before coronavirus. That's a different situation, but it would have, it would have been ugly. Right, man. Uh, well, Dan, are there, any other, are there any other fraudulent companies domestically that we should be looking at? Yes. Really? What do you got? Do tell. Name, name one or two. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I got, oh, I'm okay. working on a report right now. Okay. Uh, Off the air. We'll, we'll just talk about it. Yeah. Just whisper it. Just whisper it in our ear. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll come on your show and, uh, and drop a report. How's that? Hey, oh, yeah, we would I love, love it. it. I love man, it. We, we'll, yes. we'll, do the, we'll do the Dan report every, yeah. <laughs> whenever you got one, man. Yeah. That'll Absolutely. Be my, version, my version of the podcast, right, is uh, yes. to come on your show and drop reports. The our, our new segment. That'll be oh. our new segment. Once a month, you drop your report. Deal, man. You drop we, your reports quarterly. We, we will send it to our seven <laughs> listeners. And uh, uh, But uh, uh, seriously, Dan, thank you so much. Yes, Yes, we want you back on the show as soon as you got a report. Come here, and uh, you can you can break it down for us. Great, thank you very All much, right. guys. All thank right. you, man. All right, thank, thank you so much. Wow, man, Dan Davis, everybody, Dan, Dan David, Dan David. That's incredible. That's incredible. Quite, it's quite uh, a story. Quite a story, and like a worthy of a movie. Definitely worthy yeah. of a movie, and it's still kind of unfolding, which is the craziest part. Like this isn't over with. It's not like the 2008 like mortgage fraud where you're you're hearing about it on the tail end, but it's all been fixed. This is still happening. The balloon is still being pumped up past its its uh, allotted uh, fulfillment. Film, film, film. I don't know what I'm saying here, man. Yeah. Uh, but but the point is is that is that this is still happening and uh, it's incredible because there there is going to be a pop and it is going to be loud and it's going to be bad. And, uh, you know, not to scare anybody, but that's just it's just what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and maybe coronavirus took away some of the heat that would have been felt from this uh, when it fully imploded. But again, this is it's just mind blowing, like the level of fraud and deception that goes on through Wall Street and the way that they just skirt the rules and find new creative ways to do it and loopholes and all this all of this nonsense. It's just endless which but, is true, true capitalism. But here's here's the thing that really blows my mind about about Dan is that here's a guy who really could have done like every other short seller and just be like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to make money on it and, you know, wait until it yeah. explodes and whatever. Well, that, that was the pressure. The, the pressure was like, don't say anything. We have this good thing going. Like, we don't publish right. the research. We're just going to short them. And, like- and, and this is a man who made a stand and he tried to run for government and uh, I, I, it's inspiring to me because, you know, I, I'm not smart enough to either trade money or run for government. Uh, and that's why I left the country, but oh, you're, uh, you're smart I, enough to run for government. I'll say that. Uh, uh, well, yeah, that's true. I, I, I could probably, you could probably you're, get you're a hamster. Yeah. Okay. That's smart <laughs> enough to run for government. Uh, but, but, you know, this is, this is something that I'm hoping, you know, does get solved. But we uh, because ultimately, if the economy crashes, that's going to affect marketing. Right. Or maybe not. I mean, we're always going to need marketers. We're, we're always going to need marketers until our AI overlords figure out how to be creative and more creative than us with an algorithm, which is still we're still a few years away from that one. So I don't know, man. I, I haven't seen you in a long time. You could be an algorithm. I might be. You could be. I yeah. could be, too. Yeah. You never know. So uh, with that. We are uh, the Marketing Geeks, and uh, yeah, I guess we're out. We're out. Stay classy. Marketing Geeks.
Mike's. Come on, bring your friends. We'll learn marketing from distant lands. Bondo Sturgeon and Justin Womack. The fun will never end. It's Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks.